Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Tomorrow is the big day, Election Day. And here at City Lights, we want to emphasize the importance of voting. The late congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis once said, The vote is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have. Regardless of who you vote for, please vote and let your voice be heard. Later this hour, we'll hear from author Joel Stein about his latest book, Observing America's Political Landscape in a Satirical Way. The book is In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. His ironic take on our divided nation is not entirely smug, however. Along with hilarious observations, Stein learned some valuable lessons during his time in rural Texas while researching the book. But first, a new cookbook filled with multicultural flavors. India has long been associated with vibrant colors. Its festivals, traditional fashion, interior design, and architecture all display a wide range of vivid colors. That celebration of brilliant colors also extends to Indian food. As Chef Asha Gomez conveys in her new book, I Cook in Color, Bright Flavors from My Kitchen and Around the World. This chef is with us now via Zoom. Asha Gomez, welcome back to City Lights. Lois, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. Now, the title of this new book is very enticing. Please tell us, how do you cook in color? How do you not cook in color? (laughs) (laughs) You know, for me, cooking is really, it's such a visual aesthetic first, isn't it? So my menu happens at a market first. I never plan a menu and go to the market. I literally go to the market see what's available, what's fresh, but it's also just the color of what we see globally when it comes to globally inspired food. I Cook in Color is such a love story to my family, my friends, and especially my son. It's a reflection on all the countries that we've traveled to, all the amazing kitchens that I've been fortunate enough to cook in, 
And it, it kind of takes me out of that box, Lewis. You know, as a, as a first-generation immigrant chef, I'm generally boxed into cooking the cuisine of my ancestral kitchen, which is my mother's kitchen or my grandmother's kitchen. Meanwhile, I left India 35 years ago. I've called the U.S. home now for 35 years. I've traveled the world over, eaten in kitchens around the world. And I cook in color is really a reflection of, of, of it's the sum total of my life experiences and what I put on a plate. Indeed. Your previous cookbook, My Two Souths, contains recipes that combine the influence of Kerala, your native town in southern India, and your adopted home of Atlanta. What other influences specifically do we encounter in this new collection of recipes? So uh, I cook in color is very much a reflection of how I cook in my kitchen today. My kitchen is very globally inspired. You know, on any given night, I could be in Thailand making a Thai papaya salad. I could be in the south of France. I could be in Rome, Italy, where I learned how to make a quail ragu, or my mother's kitchen in the south of India making a fish head curry, or here in my kitchen in the American South. And so it really is a reflection of how I cook today. And my kitchen is very globally inspired. Mm -hmm. You're right that eating the rainbow is good for our health. How so? So I think just the vibrance of color that's all around us, first of all, the freshness of everything that you get when you're eating things that, you know, you're a quick stir fry or great salads. I have great salad recipes in the cookbook as well. It's just, you know, juices that you can have. It makes you feel good. I mean, not just from a visual perspective, but I think drinking and eating color makes you feel good. The book cover illustration is a gorgeous display of vegetables. Is this complicated to make? Not the cover. It's not. It's roasting vegetables. I tell people all the time, you give me a vegetable, I'm probably going to find a way to roast it. So it's so simple, you know, putting a platter, especially like this time of year, with all the amazing pumpkins and squashes that we have in season right now. It's literally cut things up, put it on a sheet pan, and you can spice each individual vegetable with you know, spice it up differently. Like on one, I will put cardamom and honey. On another one, I'll do black pepper. On another one, I'll crush some cumin. And it all just goes onto a sheet pan and roast for a few minutes. And you have a showstopper on your table that's delicious and healthy and good for you. Mm. Now, the recipes range from those you describe as easy to very sophisticated. Did you have in mind a particular level of expertise for readers of this cookbook? You know, Lewis, when I wrote my first cookbook, I Cook in Color, I wasn't very well versed in writing recipes. And I think so much of the way I approached my two souths was through the lens of a restaurant chef. And I think with I Cook in Color, I really honed into just being a home cook. And every recipe in I Cooking Color was tested and retested in my kitchen with my family, with my kid. And so I really kept in my mind's eye the home cook 
and the ease at which a home could, could make these recipes. And so for me, I cook in color. I think I became a better recipe writer just from experience of writing one cookbook already. And I think it's probably my best work yet because I try to simplify it as much as I possibly can based on how it is I like to cook at home on any given weeknight. I want it to be a one pot wonder, you know, everything going into one dish and simplifying things. So I feel the recipes may be just a, that much easier in eye cooking color than maybe they were in My Two Souths. I mean, My Two Souths is a brilliant cookbook too, but I feel like eye cooking color is more relatable because I changed as a writer and how I wrote a recipe during this process. I think I encountered an example of how you coax us away from feeling intimidated in the entry for wild boar and poke salad lasagna. And, <laughs> and I have to tell you, Asha, it helped me that you added a reference to the song Poke Salad Annie because that was one of my favorite songs as a teenager. Would you talk about how you adapted this recipe for the less experienced cook? So, you know, if you can't find the poke, I mean, you can use so many other greens in this recipe. You could use collards if you want. You could use spinach if you want. You could really, there's a multitude of greens that you can use. And the entire cookbook, you know, I'm telling you, listen, it, take a recipe, use it as a foundation, and then take what's in your kitchen and have fun and play with it. Don't be intimidated. If, if a recipe calls for five ingredients and you have only four, it's still going to be delicious. You know, get creative. Use something out of the box. Just being inspired by the base recipe that you've been given. So that's a prime example of, you know, you can't find a particular green. Use another green. It's going to be just as delicious. And what about the wild boar? So if you can't get wild boar, I mean, there's so many gamey meats that you can use. I mean, if you can't get boar, use pork. If you can't, if pork is not going to be good enough, use, if you want turkey, use turkey. You literally could substitute with any number of different meats that you want. Nice salmon salad and crying tiger grilled beef salad look gorgeous on the page, but those don't seem at all difficult to make. They're not. It's as simple as, you know, making a quick dressing at home, grilling it off, roasting it in the oven. And then, you know, with, with the knee salad, I, I talk about how my influence in my mother's kitchen has always been, you know, we finish dishes in Kerala. We temper oil with some mustard seeds and some curry leaves. It's usually just splattered on top of whatever it is that you have cooked. And so you have this gorgeous slab of salmon and you roast it and you pull it out and you temper some mustard oil on it and voila, you know, you have something that's so beautiful and it's easy and simple and it's it's decadent for like an afternoon with the ladies or an evening where you want to have a light dinner. So yes, and the same thing with the crying salad. It's all about making simple 
things that you're not used to. So you make a dressing that you're not otherwise used to making, or you make a Thai-inspired dressing, like for the Thai, uh, for the beef salad. And it's the simple things that you can bring into your kitchen that are globally inspired that you might not otherwise be familiar with. But also in the book, write a lot about where you can get access to these things. I mean, in today's world, we're literally three days away from getting anything at our doorstep that we feel that we can find. If you feel that you're in some part of the world where you can't find a particular ingredient, I mean, you look it up in three days, it can show show up at your doorstep. So I'm hoping that I've given enough resources for people to find the ingredients needed to make these dishes. Yes, I'm curious why the tiger is crying. He's not crying. It just sounded really beautiful. He's, <laughs> he, he's crying because he's crying tears of joy. It's so delicious. Oh. <laughs> now, you, you point out that Thai cooking is especially well suited to those with a busy lifestyle, yet it's also quite sumptuous and nutritious. What especially appeals to you about Thai cooking? You know, it's so rare that I see Thai cooking. I have a very dear friend. She's like my sister, Faye Poon, who's from Bangkok, Thailand. And I've learned so much from her and, you know, through her cooking influences in my kitchen. I've never used, seen her use a shred of oil on anything. Like literally all all her cooking starts off with water and just tons of herbs. You know, it's cilantro, cilantro root, it's palm sugar, it's lemon, it's lime, it's green chili, it's garlic. And it's always starts off so light, but it's just full of herb. And it's, it's the thing with Thai cuisine is you have tang, you have heat, you have sweet. It's like this umami of flavors, like your palate can experience everything in one dish. Yes, and uh, I look forward to making that crying tiger grilled beef salad. I'm glad the tiger isn't crying because (laughs) he's going extinct or anything like that. Asha, this book is a love letter to your son, Ethan. Does he enjoy cooking with you? He loves being in the kitchen with me when I'm cooking. If you ask me, does he actually like to cook? I would say probably not. But he loves the act of being together as a family when we're Look, you know, when we're thinking of what we want to prepare for dinner, if he wants, when we go to the market, he loves helping me in the aspect of cooking. He's very much a tech guy. So I could see him totally being in robotics or tech or that's probably, but, you know, he knows how to cook. He can take care of himself at 15. Like he could, he could make a steak. He could make great eggs and make himself breakfast. But for me also, my kitchen has been such a way of teaching my kid about other cultures. You know, we travel a lot. But there are places in the world that I can't necessarily always go to or take Ethan with me to. Um, 
And I choose to use my kitchen as an educational forum in so many ways because I'm able to teach him about another people, another culture, another cuisine through food and right here in my kitchen. You know, and I think I bring the world in just that much closer. And I think that when kids are familiar with something, they, they have more empathy. And, um, you know, what better way to teach your children about the world than through food? Well, ultimately, you're right. This book is about cognizant cooking. How do you define that? So for me, this when I say cognizant cooking, it's about being conscious, right? It's being conscious about, let's see, the origins of a recipe, having reverence and respect for the origins of a recipe. You know, you can take that recipe and make it your own, but it's still having reverence for where it came from. Um, just being in that moment, right? Being present when you're working with ingredients, enjoying the beauty of that ingredient, and then enjoying another culture. To me, that is being completely aware of what it is you're cooking in your kitchen and what it is you end up putting in your mouth. Um, just being aware of the process is so important. I think it makes cooking that much more joyful. Asha Gomez, thank you for this colorful preview of your new cookbook. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for having me. I always love speaking with you. Author and Atlanta chef Asha Gomez. Her latest book, I Cook in Color, Bright Flavors for My Kitchen and Around the World, is out now. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Journalist and author Joel Stein is not a man of the people. He is among the elite, a term he fully embraces. Stein's latest book is In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You Are Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. Joel Stein joined Lois back in the pre-pandemic days of January to discuss the book. She began by asking him how the elite became the underdog. There are always a small group of people that run anything, and there's always resentment against them. So I think that's just in social DNA. So I think there's always resentment against the elites, often deserved, often overstated. And the problem, I think, is that the intellectual elite, which is what I'm talking about in the book, not the, the moneyed elite. A lot of the people who go to Davos don't have a lot of money because they work for the government or they work for an NGO or they work for a university. But these intellectual elite, I think, have become afraid to call themselves the elite because we've been so attacked. And what I want to do is instill some pride so that we continue to be able to run things without running around scared. And hence, in defense of elitism, in the introduction, you say elites are people who think, populists are people who believe. But not all members of the elite share the same values. There are nuances, as you just hinted at. What is the difference between those you describe as the boat elite and the other elite? In 1900, this economist, fascist economist named Vilfredo Pareto, writes this essay, which is the first time the word elite is used kind of the way that we use it now, and the essay was called The Circulation of the Elites. And his argument wasn't that the elite gets toppled by the masses. 
his argument is that there are always two groups of elite that are fighting each other, and one of them is going to be in charge. And the two groups are what I call the intellectual elite and the boat elite. So my elite don't want to own a yacht. We just want to give a TED Talk. And then there's another group of elite, of which uh, Donald Trump is a member, who are really interested in raw power and money. All of their goals and interests and belief in the way the world works are very different. And we're really having a battle right now, as you can see, in tons of countries between people who believe in representative democracy and people who believe in the power of autocracy. Mm. And that, in the end, I think, is the battle we're experiencing right now. And, and that's what struck me really a couple times with Sarah Palin, certainly, with Brexit, but it really struck me during the 2016 election. And I thought, oh, I know why this is happening, that things are being completely realigned between the old kind of fight between the left and the right, which was you know, how much communism should I dip in my capitalism? And the new fight, which is much more fundamental between populists and elitists, mm. people who believe in operating solely from your gut and that that's the only pure good way to run anything and people who believe in experience and education. So when did you first become worried about populism? It was a weird moment for me. I was watching the Today Show, which no elitist will admit to doing. So I'm going to say I was in a green room somewhere about to go on the Today Show. I don't know if that's true, but let's just say that. And I heard Vice President Joe Biden interviewed by Matt Lauer about the nomination of Elena Kagan. And Lauer's argument was if she gets nominated, all of the Supreme Court justices will either be from Harvard, Yale, or Columbia. And isn't that too elitist? And I just thought that's such an insane thing to say. This is probably literally the most intellectual legal job in the country. And you don't want people to have the best education because that's unfair. And then I kept seeing that played out from the left and the right. So yeah, I feel like I'm hearing insanity from all sides about how people should just operate from the gut as if we all instinctually know what's good and bad. And often from Christians who believe firmly in the Ten Commandments, the subtext of the Ten Commandments is don't listen to your gut. It's that, you know, if you listen to your gut, you're going to kill and cheat and steal and covet. And when your parents call on your cell phone, you're not going to honor thy parents and not answer their, their calls. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the gut is not a good way to operate. As David Foster Wallace said, my gut tells me more than anything else one certain truth which is that I am the most important direct center of the universe. It upsets me when people think that we just need to get rid of the expertise and listen to normal people from their normal guts. Although there is a very elite reference to David Foster Wallace in which you mentioned George Plimpton asked you which one he was. Yeah, that was one of the greatest moments of my life. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was very young, and I was at the book party in New York for Infinite Jest. And uh, this is what elites do. They smugly brag about everything, which this book is full of. And I was standing next to George Plimpton, which was very exciting. And if for some reason, he turned to me and he said, which one's David Foster Wallace? And I was like, oh. And he was, wearing, of course, wearing a bandana. So it was really easy. I was like, that guy who looks miserable over there is David Foster Wallace, the person who looks most miserable at the party. The person who looks least miserable at the party was the guy answering questions for George Clinton. <laughs> so it was a great night for me. Well, what happens when populists get rid of the 
elite. You give some sobering historical examples. One of the ones I mentioned in the introduction, of course, is Cambodia, where Pol Pot decided to kill anyone with an education or who wore glasses. And, you know, Cambodia was now a wonderful place to go visit full of really friendly people. So that's maybe not a great example. Although no one from Cambodia has won a Nobel Prize. But that's a probably a pretty good exchange for being a happy place full of friendly people. <laughs> but but still, it's probably not what you want from a culture. The book is divided into six parts, and the headings for each part foreshadow the author's experience. Joel, this invokes the style of an 18th century English novel. Did you feel like Gulliver or the literary character Tom Jones? Yes. I'm so excited. You're the only person I've talked to who picked up on that, which really? I tried so hard to push. Well, at least who said it to me <laughs> oh, or who didn't think it was stupid, maybe. But yeah, I was also thinking of like Thomas Paine and those kind of mm. arguments and essays. But yes, I don't love 18th century novels at all, actually, but I love the pretense of them. So yeah, we tried to copy <laughs> their font. And each chapter starts with, in which the author, which I find obnoxious and hilarious. And I, I started each section with a quote which I thought was also really a pretentious quote, too. And I thought that would be really funny, uh, too. Well, some of them were appropriate enough not to be funny. You had Walt Whitman and Alexis de Tocqueville. I mean, those, those resonated. I know. That's the problem. Sometimes when I come up with a joke like that, like I'm going to make it super obnoxious, really elitist, and then I get into it. I'm like, well, I'm at least going to pick a good quote if I'm going to do this. <laughs> and then it loses a little bit of the joke. Part one. But even the beginning, I have a, instead of a quote at the very beginning of the book, I wrote something in Latin myself, which was, I can't pronounce in Latin, but it translates to, it is imperative that a book about elitism begin with a quote in Latin. And yours does. Now, yeah, it has to. Part one has you, the author, situated in Miami, Texas, or Miami, they call Thank you it. for correcting yourself. Miami, yes. Texas. Why did you travel there? Well, I wanted to begin the book by finding out why people hate me, which I probably just could have talked to my friends. But instead, <laughs> I went to the county in America which had the highest percentage of Trump voters. 95.3% of the people in Roberts County, Texas, which is in the panhandle near Oklahoma, voted for Trump. So I went down there for a week and just hung out with people and got to know them, which was, which was really interesting and different than I expected. Yeah. What surprised you? What flew in the face of your expectations? Just about everything. All my family and friends told me to be careful down there. They were afraid I'd be killed or beat up at least. And they told me not to tell anyone I was Jewish. That was the first piece of advice everyone gave me. And so I got down there after reading Hillbilly Elegy and expected kind of meth-addicted, toothless mamas who wanted to fight me. And that is not at all what I encountered. This particular area of Texas is very, very rural, very sparsely populated, 100% white, 100% Christian but very well-educated. Most of the people I met had gone to college. They were not poor. The average income there is higher than, than in Los Angeles, where I live, and extraordinarily friendly. When you're in a town that doesn't get a ton of visitors and, and someone comes, and they did not trust the press. So 
I had a lot going against me. But nevertheless, they're such friendly people. I, I didn't pay for a meal the whole time I was there. Now, there's only one restaurant in town, and it's not open all the time. But people brought me into their houses for meals. You know, After church, I went to someone's house for dinner. People were really open in a way that I really appreciated. Okay. Church makes for a great segue here. I really appreciate your wit, and I was hoping you might read a bit from your book to give listeners an idea of the tone of your writing. Would you please go to page 84. Oh, there's nothing I like more than reading my own words. This is a this is a treat. Thank you. I'm in this town of Miami, Texas, and I've been invited to church, which I was hoping would happen, so I packed my Sunday best, and I show up there. I am welcome to the room with a verse from Hebrews 13.2 written on the wall. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels unaware. Though I like this line a lot, I don't understand it. We should only be nice to people because they might have hung out with angels? How great can these people be if angels were sent to spy on them? What kind of idiot has an angel over for dinner and doesn't notice the wings and halo? What types of entertainment do angels prefer? Should you put on Handel's concerto and B-flat major for harp? Or would that be racist? We haven't even started Bible study, and I already had a lot of questions. Okay, why is... It races to play Handel's harp concerto for the angels. Oh, that's like, you know, if a Jewish guest and you play like Hava Nagil or something. It just <laughs> okay. seems too on the nose, doesn't it? Like they must hear that. Yeah, I get it. We like the harp. We know. <laughs> right? I think angels would be very upset by that. Okay. So it doesn't have to Or maybe to do not. It. Maybe they love it. Maybe it's really welcoming to do that. I, I just don't know any angels. Staying in Miami, what happened when you suggested that... Sometimes you can underthink. Ooh, that was a bad moment for me. Because I'm a smug elitist, and that's why people hate us, and I I really try to tamp it down. Trust me, even in this interview, I can be way worse. This is me at my best. But it slipped a little bit when I was in Miami, Texas. We were hanging out. The first house I went to that I was invited to, I walked in the living room, and I saw more crosses in that room than I'd seen in a church ever in my life. There were 14 crosses in this guy's living room. And, and that turned out to be the case in most of the houses I went to. And then we went to the back porch after they made me an amazing dinner. And people just kept coming over the house as they do every night and not looking at their cell phones and just talking. It was wonderful. Unfortunately, at some point, people wanted to know why I was there. And we started talking about politics. And this was around the time when uh, Donald Trump was really threatening Kim Jong-un before they became lovers or whatever happened. This is when he was really threatening him. <laughs> and there's this thing in the book that I call the meteorologist fallacy, which is that people listen to the weather and then it, it, they hear it's not going to rain and then it rains and they say, oh, you know, the weather report's always wrong. I'm not listening to the weather report ever again, which is really upsetting because the weather report has become far more accurate over time. And just because experts make a mistake as they're going to doesn't mean the counterfactual is true, which is that people who know nothing are going to get it right more often. So he basically makes what I consider the meteorologist fallacy, which is he says, all these administrations didn't accomplish anything with North Korea. So why listen to the generals? Why listen to the think tanks? Let Trump just do whatever he feels is right. And that'll be better. And I found that very upsetting. I was like, look, this isn't about left or right for me. This is 
conservatives say this was a bad move. This is just going to help Kim Jong-un consolidate his own people against America and for him. And this guy, Jerry, who's sitting there, says, sometimes you probably overthink, at which point I unfortunately said, sometimes you underthink. He was the only person you encountered in Miami whom you found unfriendly. How did that go over? Yeah, everyone in Miami, Texas, was so friendly to me, except for this guy who showed up at this porch. And he looked a little bit like Billy Bob Thornton. He was looking at me kind of harshly, and this woman introduced me as a columnist for Time Magazine, which was my job at the time. And he said, I've read his stuff. Hmm. And usually you don't just throw that out there without some kind of compliment. You don't usually say, shoes. You usually say, nice shoes. So I knew <laughs> automatically like it was going to be hard with Jerry. Jerry was tough. Jerry, um, Jerry had been an alcoholic for a long part of his life and had found God and moved to this small town and, and really, really wants me to be Christian, still calls me a lot and is a, is, is a part of my life now on a kind of you know, monthly basis. We'll return to Lois's conversation with author and journalist Joel Stein after a quick break. You're listening to City Lights on member-supported 90.1 WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to Lois Reitz' conversation with author and journalist Joel Stein. Here, he begins by reading a part of his book, In Defense of Elitism, which addresses his own desire to become an elite. This is my favorite interview ever because I get to read my book out loud. (laughs) I love hearing authors read. I have devoted my life to one thing. That thing probably should have been helping others. Instead, I have been laser focused on becoming a member of the elite. When I was seven, my parents took me from our suburban New Jersey town to a French restaurant in Manhattan, where they tried to dissuade me from ordering escargot by telling me that escargot are snails. It was a good strategy, but it didn't work. I suffered through those gastropods, and then I suffered through homework and extracurriculars to get into a college with brand recognition. (laughs) I got to Stanford, where I finally saw the elite in person. But I didn't get to experience being an elite until the summer I interned in Manhattan at Newsweek magazine. Editors handed me stray invites, a press pass to the Democratic Convention, a movie screening of Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, a book party at a drag queen filled nightclub in a former church that no one in Miami, Texas would have enjoyed except Jody Tarpley. I went back to college knowing that if I could once again score invitations to these events, my life would be bigger, my curiosity more sated, my past plates of hors d'oeuvres more free. I called this world where influential people congregated the loop, and I vowed to get in. And you did get in. 
But there's always, as C.S. Lewis says, and more and more inner loop. He called them rings. And he said you would destroy your life and sacrifice all of your integrity if you worked harder and harder to get into a more and more center part of the ring. Whereas I think my life has been greatly enhanced by getting to a more and more center part of the ring. And I would gladly trade that off for those other eight Narnia books after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> Prince Caspian. I do like that the loop had its own jargon that included carpaccio, fresh air, along with the Uffizi and Pilates. Yeah, there's a lot of important words I had to learn quickly in my way to try and <laughs> join the loop. And I realized that because right after college, I was hired by Martha Stewart to write for her TV show. And I went on an interview with Martha Stewart. And shortly after we sat down and she showed me pictures of herself climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, she asked me if I wanted San Pellegrino, at which point I asked her what San Pellegrino was. And she laughed and asked me if I wanted San Pellegrino again. At which point I said, what is San Pellegrino? And that went on for a long time because she didn't believe that I couldn't know what it was. And I didn't know if it was like a pasta or a wine or a way to make, you know, a bird bath out of popsicle sticks. <laughs> and eventually, you know, this slightly fizzy water shows up and I'm a little let down after all that buildup. Okay. Don't you think that imported fizzy water is pretentious for Americans? Totally. I mean, come totally. on. Totally. Seltzer. Yeah. Seltzer. I'm, I'm 100% with you. No, that kind of straddles the boat elite part. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's pretty close to putting gold plating on everything. So, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Part three of the book is titled The Populist Elites, which has some truly hilarious moments and some very offensive ones, a la Tucker Carlson. Mm. Part four is the elite populists. I enjoyed reading about your father-in-law in part four. You describe him as listening to NPR and watching a lot of PBS. This is how you profile him. So what's the difference between the populist elites and the elite populists? Well, that was my way of kind of describing the elite populists are people like Tucker Carlson or Bannon or Boris Johnson. They're people who probably went to a very elite school and had some elite jobs and ran in those circles and are now flying the flag of populism, partly because they might believe in it, in the tribalism and nationalism of it, partly because they want power. They've become traitors to the intellectual elite and have joined the boat elite, Hmm. in essence, and have started to believe or totally believe that power and money are more important than, than ideas. The populist elites are people who aren't being let into the intellectual elite group, but long to be. I spent some time with 826LA, where I was doing some volunteering, helping really poor kids in LA apply to colleges. And, and these are people who the system has not helped at all, but still believe in the system and still believe that education and expertise are a way into the system to change the system. And, and so, so they're totally two different sides of, of this battle. It's not coincidental. Those populist elites are mean-spirited and mean. Yeah, although at the end of the book, this is a topic I talk about a lot, which is both sides are getting mean. Like, we're in a real existential battle, which is something I learned when I was in Miami, Texas, 
because I had read all of these polls where white Christians say they are more discriminated against than black people in our country. And I had trouble wrapping my head around that because that's, that's not my lived experience and it's not any experience I can see in any data. It's not so that black person's lived experience, I wouldn't think. That's not what anyone's told me. But I asked everyone in Miami, Texas if they thought it was true, and they all said yes. And so I, I drilled down into what they thought that meant. And it, it became clear to me that people feel acceleration. They don't feel speed. And if you're a white Christian, what you feel is that you have less power than you did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, which is true. And they feel an existential threat that if they don't grab control of this country, especially rural America, the, the America that they want to see is going to be replaced by the dystopia that they think I live in, which is a place where you don't know your neighbors, you're staring at your phone all day, there are homeless people all around you. They don't like the world that I live in. They don't want America to be reflected, to be the dominant part of our country. They're worried. They don't like Donald Trump in Miami, Texas. He wouldn't fit in well there. Mm -mm. But what they see is they would tell me that if you have a cockroach infestation and the exterminator comes over and he's showing his butt crack and he's cursing, but he gets the job done, then he's the exterminator you go with. They want the general who's going to win the war, not the general who's going to be a good dinner guest. <laughs> you mentioned the cockroaches. This is a good time to point out you encountered scorpions in Miami, Texas. I suffered for this book. People don't talk about that enough. <laughs> I ate a lot of fatty foods. I, I may have been bit by a scorpion. It was tough out there. You seem to enjoy the food there. I mean, the, the food was great. The third helping of banana pudding. <clears throat> yeah. Earlier we spoke about the Handel Harp Concerto. You have some other references to music, the Reader's Digest idea of classical music with no opus numbers or titles, the romantic Rachmaninoff and great music's greatest hits. Were you trained in music, Joe? Oh, no, no, no. I'm a horrible person. And at some point, at that point being around when my 30th birthday, I decided that I was going to try and become uh, an intolerable old person. And so I really tried to teach myself wine and classical music, knowing nothing about either one. And I've done, I've done an okay job at both. But yeah, totally self-taught. Hey, if you love music. I do. There's no right or wrong. You love it. That's it. Um, My son, who's 10, is playing violin. So I'm learning a tiny bit through him, but not much. The book culminates with the saving of the elite. Would you tell us your take on Bill Crystal? Yeah. Bill Crystal has been very nice to me. Whenever I was writing a column and needed a quote, he got back to me right away, and he let me interview him for this book. There's all these never-Trumpers who are just so sad right now. And it diff I'm sad about my country. They're sad about their country and their party, which they either feel like has totally changed and let them down or revealed a part of itself that they had denied was true for a very long time. So Bill Crystal is trying to save both his party and his country, and, and in the most elite way possible, which is, you know, semi-secret society organizations. So one of them is called Patriots and Pragmatists, which brings together people, centrists basically from the left and right, who are trying to figure out a, a new path forward, uh, I hope by forming maybe a party. And then there's a group called the Meeting of the Concerned. 
which is this really sad group of Republicans who meet in the basement of the Nick Hansen Center, which is this think tank, to talk about how to get rid of Donald Trump and save their party. <laughs> you know, one of the, the, the big arguments in these groups, and I feel like among liberals, is a question of demeanor. Do we fight or do we try and... The, I mean, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. And I think that's a really important thing for the intellectual elite to keep in mind. Because once you sacrifice that, you've become a member of the boat elite and you're, you're arguing for tribalism and against you know, expertise and intellectualism. Other than reminding readers of the 10 pages in the book where you mentioned that you attended Stanford, Joel, in the end— I think it's more than 10, but that's nice to <laughs> In, I cut a lot out, though. Oh, okay. In the end, you are humble and humbled. Uh, ultimately, what changed your mind about your feelings of superiority? Yeah. What became clear to me was that my attitude and the attitude of someone who would write a book called In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book, is not a very successful attitude. It doesn't really win over a lot of people. And I've been hearing that my whole life. I've been called smug most of my life. I was called precocious as a child, the definition of which is uh, is smug child, really, is what precocious means. And so it became increasingly clear to me after talking to the nice people in Miami, Texas, that I needed to be a better listener and not worry about being a good speaker. So I think... There's some humility involved in saying, I shouldn't just argue to someone in a rural town that is dying that they have it better than other people and that their pain isn't very significant and that globalism has saved so many people in the world from starvation and disease and that just because things aren't quite as good for them as they used to be, I don't want to hear their complaining. Just because their pain isn't as bad as other people's pain doesn't mean their pain isn't real and I shouldn't acknowledge it. And I think that's a big mistake that elitists are making. Joel Stein is the author of In Defense of Elitism. More information about Joel and his book can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The Welch School Gallery at Georgia State University is featuring two exhibitions that focus on human relationships with nature. Medora Frey, Stargaze, and a facsimile of events run concurrently through November 13th. In September, curator Cynthia Farnell and artist Medora Frey join Lois for a conversation about the exhibition and the inspiration behind the works. I'm interested in the human relationships with nature and how these connections impact the environment, individuals, and communities. And about three years ago, I was inspired by Medora's experiments with light and form. And although some of the materials she was using were manufactured like mirrored glass and neon, you could feel the human touch by the way that she dealt with things like uh, the electrical cords or she incorporated painted marks into her three-dimensional wall pieces. And as a result, there was always like an earthy warmth to her sculpture. I felt like they were alive. So when we decided that she should do an exhibition at GSU, I invited New York-based curator Jesse Penridge uh, to make a related exhibition for the other gallery. So the funny story is, is that we were supposed to do this show two years ago, and about a month before the exhibition was supposed to open in June, Cynthia called me and 
kind of laughed and told me, you're not going to believe this, but they're tearing the building down that's connected to the art building that's adjacent. And we can't do your show because I work with a lot of glass and light and electrical, and it's not going to be good for your work. So we postponed the show until the fall which then that's when they actually really tore the building down. <laughs> that's when it really happened. So this show has been postponed twice. And when it was rescheduled for this fall, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen with this, uh, like as far as like attendance on campus, would it be worth it to have a show when the students aren't really on campus much? As it turns out, I think that the timing is perfect because this is the moment when people have sought respite in the outdoors and thematically it's completely in line with what's going on in people's lives, I feel like. You know, turning inward, it's very much an introspective show for me, very personal. Some of the work was made at my parents' property, which is about 20 miles south of Atlanta. I grew up on a rock quarry and grew up with piles of granite all around me. And so that's actually become one of the materials that I've been using. And we have been transporting about, it's probably going to be about 15 tons of granite into the <laughs> gallery with a team of, of uh, students here and then an assistant of mine. So that's one of my main materials. I've spent a lot of time working at Arabia Mountain and actually returning to working outside. We were not able to access our studios at the Atlanta Contemporary for several months. And so I really had a wonderful push to the outdoors. There's a lot less pressure when you can kind of roam around and you don't have to worry about how things are being attached to each other and whether they can hang on a wall. So I've been working with just arranging rocks on the ground, making patterns, photographing some of the flora in the area, making arrangements with mirrors, which I'm very fond of for several reasons. One is one is just the idea of spirituality or the association with that, that it is a way of looking into another dimension. I also like the illusion that it creates, the false space that it represents. Um, and then also it creates symmetry, which is very much a natural design element. So when we conceived of the show a couple of years ago, it originally was going to be more object-based. And this show, which is still has the same title, Stargaze, which was the original title two years ago, the title Stargaze still felt appropriate for this newer work that I've made that's more land-based, simply because I felt like it's not really about looking at stars necessarily, but it's the mode at which you experience looking at stars, where you feel the overwhelming power of the world and how small you are and the transcendent experience of that. Mm. Cynthia, you mentioned Jesse Penridge, the curator of the second exhibition on view at the Welch, a facsimile of events. How do the two exhibitions relate to one another? I know you've said they are in dialogue. Can you explain how that works? Yes. The outcome of Jesse's project, uh, Facsimile of Events, it's a group exhibition that considers concepts of nature 
through the work of eight artists from the late 19th century to the present. And it uses Frederick Law Olmsted's design of Linear Park in Atlanta as a starting point uh-huh. to talk about human relationship with nature and how we alter nature to our own ends. Uh, and this is a, a especially relevant conversation now with the fires going on you know, on the West Coast and hurricanes and COVID. Nature is really speaking right now. And Medora's work, and I think the work of a lot of other artists during this period of COVID-19, during the pandemic, I think that we're all considering our relationship to the planet and, and how much our lives are dependent on its, its health. Looking through the artwork that will be on view, I was mesmerized by the photo of Niagara Falls. Cynthia, can you describe this piece and how it was created? Yes. So this uh, Super Studio was uh, an experimental architectural firm in the 1960s, they're Italian, and they didn't create a lot of the architecture. It was more uh, theoretical proposals uh, for this architecture, and it was a way to think about being in, in the city or being urban, how to live in the 20th century, how to live in our new environments. And um, that piece, Niagara, by Super Studio, it's a proposal to create a structure that would capture the water from Niagara Falls, which is an impossible idea, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, so they were into these impossible ideas uh, of thinking of crazy architectural projects in the environment. Curator and Welch School Gallery director Cynthia Farnell speaking with artist Medora Frey. Stargaze and a facsimile of events will run concurrently through November 13th at Georgia State's Welch School Gallery. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., pianist Julie Kushran and violinist David Kushran discuss their upcoming concert. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and myself. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and Lois Reitzis is our host. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.